0: Let me ask you to turn with me this evening to the prophecy of Malachi. I want to read from the third chapter. We'll read from verse 16, or from verse 13 rather, and then read through to the close of the book, at the closing of a very brief fourth chapter. So Malachi chapter 3 and Verse 13, your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord, yet you say, what have we spoken so much against thee? You have said it is vain to serve God, and what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts, and now we call the proud happy, yea, They that work wickedness are set up, yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Then shall you return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name, Elijah the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Amen. We again trust the Lord to bless the public reading of his inspired word. Let's bow our heads and our hearts together. Heavenly Father, we rejoice to sing hymns, Lord, familiar hymns often, Lord, hymns perhaps that take us back even to childhood years and the joys of the season, and yet as we sing these and see many of them reaching beyond that first advent to the second, and we confess tonight that we live in that unknown, to us, undetermined season. And yet we know that there is a day appointed in your purpose. But we pray for grace. We think of that phrase that we are to occupy until you come. Lord, let us be found faithful. Let us, whatever circumstances we see, what blessings or what challenges come to us, either individually or corporately or to your people scattered abroad. Lord, we ask for ourselves and ask for them that you will give sustaining grace in perplexing times. And Lord, we come and ask in our little place even this night that you might take your word and work grace and help for us. We pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I'll let you in on a slight scheduling. I wasn't supposed to be preaching tonight. We had hoped to have Logan Elder here for this Lord's Day to preach and to kind of greet us before they journeyed to Orlando, but that wasn't possible. But it was going to be great because my little evening series on the Psalms of Asaph with one, I guess, standoff message following that and then a communion Sunday and then this Sunday, and then next Sunday's Lessons and Carols, and then Christmas, could start something fresh with the new year. So when I got the email from Logan, I said, oh, it's going to make that Sunday night have a little hole in it. But in the Lord's providence, we have tonight, and I want to come to a portion of Scripture. I looked at this. I checked my notes. I thought it was just uh, my chronometer again. Maybe maybe five years ago, turned into 13 with a broken chronometer, so it's been a little while. And you may recall that there's something from the message I preached those 13 years ago that I've repeated often since then. It was in a message from Malachi that I really was taken with what evolved in Israel during the intertestamental period. And you've heard me mention frequently since then, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Essenes and the Zealots. Well, those are the factions that emerged in Israel during that intertestamental period, during the days surrounding and, of course, following the days of Nehemiah that we're looking at in our prayer meetings. It was a time where God's people were waiting they were waiting for the fulfillment of promises that had been given to them, and yet the, the waiting got long. You know me, I'm often a big picture guy. And <clears throat> I've thought recently of the big picture of Israel. You know, we can think back and think of our Old Testaments and Israel and the sacrificial system, and you know, it kind of fills up the Old Testament in our mind. Think about it. I mean, These are going to be round numbers again. But the Exodus, roughly 1500 B.C. So there's a couple thousand years, 2,500 years that have preceded Moses. And then we've got the Exodus and the centuries of the period of the Judges. So it's, okay, roughly... 1,000 B.C. that David takes the throne. The the, the zenith of Israel's history. It looks like things are finally going to happen. Well, when is the destruction of Jerusalem? 586 B.C. So we're looking at not even 500 years that you could really say Israel, in a real way, was a thing. I mean, depending on conservative looking at the date of creation and filling up that Old Testament time itself, somewhere between 10 and 20% of the Old Testament time period is, is Israel. And you can ponder that and think of the sorrow of the expectations that were apparently unfulfilled. And you come to those 400 plus years between the fall of Jerusalem and the coming of Christ, and that's where we find, well, certainly the post-exilic prophets. And though some of the chronology of Nehemiah perhaps is later, Than Malachi's prophecy. These are certainly the closing prophetic words to Israel before the first advent of Christ. And when we understand that, Malachi is a striking prophecy. I want to read you the introductory paragraph from a commentary that I have on the post exilic prophets says, whereas most of the prophets lived and prophesied in days of change and political upheaval, Malachi and his contemporaries were living in an uneventful waiting period when God seemed to have forgotten his people enduring poverty and foreign domination in the little province of Judah. Zerubbabel and Joshua, whom Haggai and Zechariah had indicated as God's chosen men for the new age, had died. It is true the temple had been completed, but nothing momentous had occurred to indicate that God's presence had returned to fill it with glory, as Ezekiel had indicated would happen. The day of miracles had passed with Elijah and Elisha. The round of religious duties continued to be carried on, but without enthusiasm. Where was the God of their fathers? Did it really matter whether one served him or not? Generations were dying without receiving the promises and many were losing their faith. Malachi's prophecy is particularly relevant to the many waiting periods in human history and in the lives of individuals. He enables us to see the strains and temptations of such times the imperceptible abrasion of faith that ends in cynicism because it's lost touch with the living God. I remember reading those words some years ago and being smitten with that reality of the danger of periods of waiting. And I want tonight to look at the prophecy again. There are seven specific points in the prophecy where he uses a a, a device to draw attention to the sins of the people. You look at that if you go back to verse or chapter 1 and verse 2. You read the first of these, I've loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? It's that little phrase, yet you say, in response to something the Lord has said of the people. And it's a it's really an objection to the word that they bring, and that's in some ways the structure of this book. And I want to look at these again tonight. I don't want to survey all of them at the same depth. We'll look at each of them, but we'll focus more on just some that perhaps are more relevant to us. But I think of this, and in some ways I think it's a fitting Advent portion, because... Well, the first advent is the close of that intertestamental period. There was obviously a great change, really the change in history. Our calendars mark uh, that first advent of Christ. But I wonder how many similarities there might be in that period of waiting before the first advent and the period of waiting for the second advent. Perhaps waiting when. Well, some generations prior to us have been most convinced uh, that the Advent would very soon happen. I remember my dad talking about being at Piedmont Bible College in the 1950s. And if you've been in dispensational circles and know anything of prophetic expectation, I mean, you could even put some interesting stuff together. I mean... Israel became a nation in 1948. This generation shall not pass till these things be fulfilled. You can kind of pull that out of the Olivet discourse and think, well, a biblical generation's 40 years, 48. We're going to live to see the rapture. I heard a preacher once give heartfelt indication that he felt the Lord had given him a like an assurance, a little, not quite, but leaning toward charismatic revelation that he would see the Lord's coming. And this preacher's been dead for a long time. Well, I'm not wanting to go there tonight as far as prophecy assertions or prophecy rebukes, but for us, again, a season of waiting and the kind of dangers the kind of temptations that may befall us that we see illustrated in how Israel fell and the sins that they were prone to in their waiting. So let's look at these occasions in the book. If you do turn back to chapter 1, we read, I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Wherein hast thou loved us? For this to be on the lips of any person called by the Lord's name is remarkable. For God to profess His love to us, and us to say, where? How have you loved us? Well, what's underneath it? What Israel is wrestling with here is wrong thinking. They're thinking, we have all these promises that haven't happened. And yet, the whole thing of Jacob and Esau to be brought up, this is at the very heart of the covenant, this is at the very heart of understanding grace. Sure, I've shared with you the story Dr. Paisley shared of yet another preacher when a person came up to him and said, I'm struggling with the doctrines of grace. Preacher, I'm struggling with Romans 9. It says God hated Esau. And the answer is, yeah, I struggle with Romans 9 too, but I understand that part. It's the God loved Jacob part that I can't wrap my head around. Well, there's the the heart of grace. Israel had seen and you have a whole book of the minor prophets that's given to the judgment that would rightly fall upon Edom, Esau and his seed. But Israel here is allowing themselves to come into such a view of their God that would be underneath that striking questioning of His love to them Because the promise hadn't been fulfilled yet. You wonder, if those in Israel were brought to that point, how have they begun to twist their understanding of the Gospel? How have they begun to twist their understanding of the promise? if they could say the circumstances we see, or maybe more accurately, the circumstances we're not seeing in the victory of the church in the world, it makes us wonder if God's a liar or not. Wherein have you loved us? If they had understood the prophets that had come before, If they could have understood the servant of the Lord in Isaiah's prophecies and humbly marveled that that's what the seed of David was coming to do first, they wouldn't be brought to such a statement as this Wherein have you loved us? Are we going to judge God based on our circumstances? The kind of temporary, temporal circumstances we think we deserve. Don't you just love all the commercials? Get what you deserve. Call this number. We don't get paid till you do. Think theologically. Even when you're seeing commercials. What do I deserve? I don't want what I deserve. I deserve hell. Get what I deserve. Israel's already begun twisting the promise to be able to question God on those terms. But look down to verse six. A son honoreth his father and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? If I be a master, where is my fear, saith the Lord of hosts unto you? O priests that despise my name. And ye say, Wherein have we despised thy name? If you go down to verses 12 and 13 here, I think it sets a little of the context for these two occurrences of the phrase in verse 6 and in verse 7. We read, but you've profaned it, that as you say, the table of the Lord is polluted, and the fruit thereof, even His meat, is contemptible. You said also, behold, what a weariness it is. And you've snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts. And you brought that which was torn, and the lame, and the sick. Thus you brought an offering. Should I accept this of your hand, saith the Lord? He gives comparison in here. Are you going to bring... Insufficient offering. Insufficient merchandise to an earthly master. And here they're corrupting the very parts of the offering and the service of the Lord. But to go back to verse 6, this is the second occurrence of this phrase. The Lord speaks of priests despising His name. And so they give the response. Yet ye say... Wherein have we despised Thy name? Well, this and the challenge that immediately follows in verse 7, connected with the priests and connected with worship, these priests have come to the point where they're despising their portion. They come to the point where they have an attitude of, we're doing God a favor by serving Him in such lean times. And you think of the temptations that would come to the priests with such a mindset. You think of, well, the priests that we find in Christ's day, who was becoming more comfortable. The Sadducees, particularly among those in the priestly class, were wealthy. Of course, they had made compromises with the world. They had surrendered doctrine to achieve such status. Pharisees were a little stricter. They hadn't made those kind of compromises and they weren't as wealthy as the Sadducees. I guess I preach to myself most here. But what a mindset. To have such a A high view of personal, well, what do I deserve? I'm the Lord's servant. I should be getting some benefits from this stuff. Doing God a favor by being a preacher in such bad times. Seriously. Is that an understanding of the gospel you're supposed to preach? Here's really a despising of God's name. And you go further. Verse 7, the third of these statements. Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar, and ye say, wherein have we polluted thee? And you see this presentation of really what becomes a corruption of worship. Well, it's, it's bad times. We're trying to rebuild a kingdom here. Don't you see? Let's excuse the blind and the lame instead of what was required in the typology of the one without blemish. You could flesh this one out a good season when you bring up the whole issue of corruption, of worship, in lean periods of waiting. I think really, and again, I don't want to dwell on that refrain I've mentioned over the years since we looked at this, but when you look at the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Zealots and the Essenes, what had they done during the lean waiting period? If the Messiah hadn't come, if the kingdom hadn't come, they began to reinterpret the kingdom. They began to change what the expectations were to be. And I wonder even you can get into some of the prophetic variations and see changing expectations. hear the priests go along with the corruption of worship, and they themselves are overcome with covetousness in the process, the Lord rebukes them. You have to skip down to the 17th verse of chapter 2 to come to the fourth of these complaints of the people. We read, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet ye say, wherein have we wearied him? When ye say, one that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them, or where is the God of judgment? We come to an amazing statement here again. The people wearying the Lord, accusing God of not judging righteously they had actually stooped to the point of considering themselves worthy to be judging. And in doing so, they had concluded that they were the righteous ones and they, therefore, should not suffer. Why should Gentile nations be building roads and spanning the globe with their prosperity such as transpired in those empires that were allowed to consume and hold Israel captive. Something's not right. They reckon themselves to be more righteous, more able to judge. Again, what are they doing? Looking at now. They're not looking at I mean, read the Psalms. The day of reckoning, the day of God judging the earth righteously. I can't wait for that day because it impacts their lives. Their earthly, temporary lives. Their current prosperity. Their current circumstances. And they weary God by their own assertions of being worthy to judge. But if you turn to the third chapter in verse 7, here's one I want to tarry on for a moment. We read, Even from the days of your fathers you are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me, And I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye said, Wherein shall we return? Now step back from that. Here's a statement, really, you could almost say, of the whole ministry of the prophets. The prophets were raised up to call Israel back to God, to call Israel away from their sins and call them to return. They needed to turn from their sinfulness, turn from their idolatry, turn from their unbelief. You can really look at the sequence of events and sins. We talked something about the cycle of sins in Romans 1 among the Gentiles. We'll look at the sins in Israel. They finally get into the same cycle in apostasy, but it begins with unbelief. And so here they come to the point where the prophets preach, the Lord's word is given, the call for them to return. And they say, wherein should we return? What What are you talking about? We don't need to repent. These people that are oppressing us need to repent. We're fine. And I wonder how many people that are in church tonight or maybe not because their church doesn't have Sunday night anymore but they were in church this morning are of the mind yeah this i mean do you see the news this week wickedness abounds it's it's just everywhere and there's never a thought Of our own sin, of how far out of touch with God we are. I remember hearing a prophecy teacher many years ago. He was a dear man, but he wasn't my preacher. He was in the church for a few years when I was a teenager, but he was a Dallas Seminary grad, and I mean, that was, that was, Top shelf stuff in those circles. So he taught the adult Bible class, and this fella couldn't teach, he couldn't teach the book of Ruth without putting a chart on the board and the rapture in it somewhere. I mean, it was just, that was the guy. But he said something one day that I thought was very interesting. He said, If you look, and he's even dealing with prophecy, but He spoke of the condition of the church in some ways being a barometer more so than the condition of the world. I don't know, maybe he was drawing a little bit from the theory on the seven letters in the church of Laodicea and the Laodicean age and whatnot, but but I think there's a kernel of truth there. We can be in seasons of waiting and in seasons of apostasy such as our day. And really, I mean, again, big round numbers. If you look at the 20th century of, as a century of the introduction of apostasy into the church and the abandonment of truth by the church, well, the impact that's had on the world and the stuff we're seeing transpire now, But here, for the church to say, yeah, look at the world. Look how sinful it is. And not be willing to turn an eye on its own sin. You know, if you look at church history, days of revival and days of blessing, have not usually been when all of a sudden people in the world get the understanding we're far from God. We need to be saved. Very often it's when people in the church come to the understanding. We're far from God. We need to be saved. It's when you get things like are called a great awakening. And here's Israel coming to a point where god calls them to return and they don't have the humility to say yes we need to return we need to turn from our sins though so they say where in should we return What's wrong with me? Well, these are the the thought processes, if you will, that were allowed to sit for those centuries of the intertestamental period that produced the Jews Paul was writing against in Romans 2, we begin to look at this morning. Wherein should we return? It's easy to look better than what's out there today in the public school system and in the government and in Hollywood and online and everywhere else. It's easy to look better than that. But are hearts different? Or is there a generation that cries out, Yeah, those things are bad. And yet does in many ways the same things. Just says we're relatively better than them and they need to be like us and be God's people too. Wherein shall we return? We don't need revival. The world just needs to change. These are the thoughts that were Beginning to prevail in Israel before the dark centuries that produced the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Zealots. But I hasten verse 8 in chapter 3 Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings probably always a great text for the preachers, I don't know, at the end of the year whenever. Well, there's application for a sermon on giving, I'm sure. But it's the mindset here. And you think of the people in those times. You think of Nehemiah's day and the troubles he was facing. And you think of the people, look, we've got we to rebuild life. I mean, our whole nation and the city that represents what had been the remnant left of the nation is just a bunch of rocks. It's gone. And maybe once we get ourselves established and get things on the way, I mean remember the previous prophecy even with regard to the building of the temple. You're building your own houses and there's no place to worship. And they began to rob God and bring the Lesser things. Not have a heart for the affairs of the kingdom. It's interesting this week at the conference, Stephen Lee had two sessions that focused on business people. One man gave really some testimony of being involved in a well-known scandal and collapse in Wall Street some years ago now. And then others just from different types of business did a question and answer time. And it's interesting hearing some of the testimonies they gave about particular temptations and battles and needs and conflicts that are out there for business people in the world as God's people. But the heart, many of them, and Stephen's joy in bringing some of these men in is you know, we get so warped at times when we think about, well, it's only full time Christian service people, you know, preachers and Christian school teachers and these kind of people that really really are kingdom minded people. Everybody else is just kind of out there on their own. To have a heart for the kingdom, when you're not, we're, we're all in full time Christian service, we're believers in the age in which He's called us to live. But this mindset, it set in, the things of God maybe once these temporal things are in place. And God speaks of it as robbing Him. But then you come to that last one in verse 13 where we began our reading tonight. Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Yet you say, What have we spoken against thee? Here the blindness of the people really is on display. If you look at verse 14 and 15, you've said it's vain to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept His ordinance and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the proud happy, yea, they that work wickedness are set up. Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. These people were struggling with some of the temptations the psalmist dealt with in Psalm 73 as we've looked at recently. I was foolish. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. got my thinking off. It wasn't until I went, the psalmist says, to the house of God that I understood I therein. His feet... The steps are well nigh gone. He allowed us thinking to go in the wrong way, to have a temporary perspective instead of an eternal perspective. What if God in His sovereignty and in His providence raises up a Pharaoh instead of a David for a season? Or raises up a Nebuchadnezzar for a season. And then perhaps raises up Osiris to bring back his people and give some measure of freedom again to worship and preach. All of those temporal chapters are in the hand of God. And he's worth or worthy of trusting with those circumstances. But Israel's in a season of waiting. And their patience is running out. And so they begin to say, maybe we should be fixing this. We should be judging how to view these things. And are even brought to the point of not only doubting, but Challenging God. Like I say, you see the results when you turn the page from Malachi and it is interesting that the Old Testament ends with the prophecy of Elijah coming and the New Testament opens with the ministry of John the Baptist which the Lord says, Elijah's come. But you see what transpired what type of Israel the Lord faced when He did arrive in that first advent. It wasn't an Israel that was giving testimony to the Gospel in the midst of the nations. It was an Israel that was yet to be chastened again even more harshly as the Lord would in His providence send the Gospel to the Gentiles. But as the New Testament church any different, any, in any way superior to Israel. And its tendencies toward unbelief and then changing stuff to fix the circumstances. And losing the Gospel. Losing joy in the process. Remember Habakkuk? He was looking forward to the Babylonians coming. And he says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. There's a lot to be burdened about in our times. There's a lot to be aware of in our times. But if unbelief takes root, We begin trying to figure it out and fix things because we don't like the circumstances. We're in a dangerous place. And that's why we must always be gospel-centered. And being gospel-centered, understanding grace, And that whatever outward things I might be called to endure, I'm a recipient of grace and I'm going to live with God forever. That changes our perspective. It gives us help in holding on to the truth and not compromising the truth to try and make sense of everything that's out there. I don't have to understand everything that's out there or why, or when, or how. I have to know that God understands. And He won't let anything thwart His purpose. And that there is coming a day, well, to quote from Paul, in which God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my Gospel. Let us in a season of perplexity and uncertainty, and I know I'm preaching a theme I've hit a lot in the last couple of years, but well, we've got ample evidence in the New Testament repetition aids learning. Repetition is necessary for us. So let us not lose faith. Let unbelief in times that are overwhelming us shake us from the bedrock of gospel truth in a humble pursuit of Him rather than finding ways to excuse sin and pursue selfishness and somehow justify it as Israel did here. What a staggering picture. But we're the same flesh. We need grace to be kept right in perplexing times. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, we come tonight and confess that apart from your grace, Lord, there's nothing in us to keep us from the same questions and unbelief and self-centeredness that overwhelmed Israel, produced the false religion, the Sadducees and Pharisees. little kernels of truth that were distorted. Lord, don't let us distort kernels of truth. Let us hold fast to the purity of the Gospel. So help us. Give us wisdom. Lord, we've spoken in general terms and yet there are pieces of this that impact us day by day. Guard our hearts, we ask. And let us be a faithful people looking for that day of the second coming of this key of David. Lord, bless your word to us. Lord, bless those scattered from us. Bless those of our number and connected to us that struggle with illness. Lord, be pleased to draw near to them even this Sabbath evening. And we pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.